Well, good morning again, and my name's Ryan Moore. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and excited to be here this morning with you. If I haven't met you, look forward to possibly doing so after the service. We come to the conclusion of our series this summer on the Apostles' Creed. And just to kind of give you a little direction where we're going after Labor Day, we'll start on a series in Genesis looking at uh, the life of Abraham. So that'll start the Sunday after Labor Day. Looking forward to that. But if you brought a Bible, you'll see that we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, selected verses, and then Revelation chapter 21. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Found first in 1 Corinthians 15, and then Revelation 21. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then coming down to verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Well, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same. For there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is the one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Then moving to Revelation chapter 21, looking at verses 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for those words are trustworthy and true. These words are. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. 
and how we would be utterly lost without it. So we ask this morning that you help us, that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. How does knowing your future, you could say really in any circumstance, but I'm just going to go right to it. How does knowing your future as a Christian, if you're a Christian in this room, how does that shape your present? Dramatic pause. How does knowing where you are going affect where and how and what you do today? And uh, to kind of get at this, this topic, there's no better place to start than the Babylon Bee, which for those of you that read the Bee, you know that this is a work of satire. For those that don't, please hear that again. This is a work of satire. One headline reads this, local teenager begs Jesus not to return before future wedding night. Boulder, Colorado. Come, Lord Jesus, local teenager Aiden Bradley, 15, sincerely pray Tuesday, according to sources, but not like right away. Like maybe if, I don't know, you could wait until after my wedding night, that'd be great. Pretty much, Aiden goes on to say, pretty much got it all planned out. Bradley told reporters as he stretched for a soccer summer league game. So if Jesus could just get with the program and hold off for making all things new for at least another eight or nine years, that would be great. Bradley also reportedly advised the Savior to schedule his return for some time after the release of the long-anticipated video game Half-Life 3, but before Bradley gets really old. How does knowing our future as a Christian shape our present? If you're laughing at that, and it's okay to laugh at that, you're laughing because you have prayed that prayer. I have prayed that prayer, right? And we love the bee, the Babylon bee, because it's satire. And we love satire because there's always an element of truth in there that, it, that, that comes out so uh, harshly sometimes. And what is that truth? What is it that is coming out in this article? And I want to suggest that it is saying when we don't know where we are going as Christians, when we don't know what lies ahead, when we don't know what our future is, we will long for and even worship the things in front of us. You could put it this way. When we don't think much of the future in our lives after death as a Christian, we will long for the things in this world because we think they will be better than anything heaven has to offer. And the Bible calls this idolatry. To make God's glory pay second fiddle to things you want in this life more than him. That is idolatry. So why do we do it? Why have we all sort of prayed prayers like this? Lord, hold off on your future glory before I can experience certain things here. Why have we all done it? And there's several reasons for this. And one of those reasons, of course, is because we want to be kings. And we talk about that a lot here. You know, our hearts want to make our own decisions for the things that we want in this life. And we'd rather choose what those heart, our heart desires as opposed to living out of obedience and trust and faith in Jesus. But I would suggest another that has more to do with where we are in this series in the creed. And that is, is that we are not really sure what to think about where we are going. We don't know if it is really true. And for many of us, that scares us. And so we would rather... Not trust God, and instead we would rather trust ourselves and to hold on to the things that are more certain in this world. But for one last time, at least this summer, our roadmap of reality, the Apostles' Creed, is here to pull us back from that ditch. 
as we come to an end, we are reminded of where it is that we are headed for those that are in Christ. And that is, we are headed towards a bodily resurrection and a life everlasting with Jesus himself. And I want to suggest that when we live in that reality of where we are headed, we are then able to take on a very new perspective of today. That as Christians, when I know where I'm going and what truly awaits me, I'm actually free, not to pray for my wedding day experience before Jesus returns, but to actually give it up. That is, I'm free to hold the good things of this world loosely because why this world is not all that there is. And as Christians, what this also means is that I can begin to actually consider the suffering in this world that I might either be being called to by Jesus as, fo- as a follower of his or just the circumstances of being in a broken world altogether. Because here's the deal especially for those that are outside the Christian faith, who don't believe suffering doesn't make sense if, there, if this world is all there is. Let me say it another way. <laughs> to call people to suffering, to deny yourself pleasures in a world where this is all that there is and there is nothing after this is foolish. Why would you do that? Why would you uh, consider a life of costly obedience and sacrifice If this was it, and it's exactly why Paul tells us, and we didn't read it, but it's in that same chapter, that if that is true, then we all should eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But if it is true that there is more than just this world, that we are actually going somewhere, and this world isn't all that there is, then suffering, I can consider that. At the very least, at the most, it might actually have more to do with how I experience Jesus before I die in this world than anything else. I think the more that we understand this last part of the creed, where we are going and as a result of what Jesus has done for us, it's not that we become, to use a a familiar phrase to some, too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. It's that our being heavenly minded frees us to earthly good as we live and serve and love and model costly obedience to this world around us as people who are followers of Jesus. This is where the creed leaves us. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. So with with, with this last line, what is the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? And you have an outline on your handout. You can follow along with these four things. That, that get at what this actually is. You'll see what is it, how do we know, what will it be like, and who is this for? So let's look at that first one. What is it? The Christian view of where we are headed, and for those, uh, that is for those who are in Christ after our death, is an incredibly unique uh, and to any and all other religions and world views. What happens after you die is a question as old as time and religions have offered up so many other uh, explanations for this. For some of us, for some, some religions, you are just reincarnated into something else. For other religions, you can actually become, uh, I guess, the owner and the God of your own planet, which sounds really great. Nothing comes close, though, 
to what Christianity offers, which is that you will actually spend eternity in a resurrected body. No, we are not addressing, the creed is not addressing what is referred to as the intermediate state, which is that state that you go to after you die, before Jesus comes back one last time to raise you bodily from the grave. It is that place that wherever the thief on the cross went, as Jesus looked at him and said, you will be with me in paradise, wherever that thief went to, he went to go be with Jesus. That's not what the creed's talking about. The creed is talking about the final day, the new heavens and the new earth as pictured in Revelation when Jesus comes down and raises the bodies from the grave. That is where we are. So just a disclaimer. But no other religion has anything like this. We have to remember then that when the early Christians spoke of seeing or witnessing the resurrection, as you read about in the Gospels, they were not talking about uh, actually witnessing and experiencing Jesus come out of the tomb. What they were talking about, what resurrection meant to them, was that they were part of those who witnessed and experienced the 40 plus days of witnessing uh, uh, the the, the post-mortem body of Jesus Christ. They saw it, they touched it, they could smell it, they could see it, the whole thing. That is what the New Testament writers mean when they, when they talk about the resurrection. It is referring to the body of Jesus that was once unrecognizable and then was recognizable. They were talking about the body that was seen by, by or for over 40 days by over 500 people. And then after the ascension, wasn't seen anymore. And so for anybody who was wanting to sort of put an end to this movement called Christianity, all they had to do is either produce a body or have some type of witness of seeing him walking around after the ascension. And we have none of that. The early witnesses were not speaking of a hallucination or ghostly spirit that appeared to resemble a body. They saw Jesus' body and they knew that this changed everything they were allowed to think and feel and hope for for themselves in the future. They may not have teased out all the theological implications that we are still doing today. But they knew that as the finishing touch to the Old Testament story of God calling out a people for himself, that this is how he was going to spend eternity with them. That is with a body. Therefore, when Christians confess this last line of the creed, they are saying that long after they lower my body into the ground, Jesus is going to raise it up anew. And the new heavens and the new earth will be a place here where, where you will walk and run and use that body. And it's going to work and it's going to be amazing and it's going to be incredible. Something that we almost, well, we certainly can't imagine. J.I. Packer says this, says, my present body is like a student's old beat up car. Care for it as I will. It goes precariously and never very well and often lets me and my master down. It is very frustrating. But my new body will feel and behave like a Rolls Royce. And then my service will no longer be spoiled. This is what is waiting for us in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And this is what we are to hope for. Not a bodiless, spiritual, floating on the clouds, playing harp, Gnostic type of heaven. Because this is when we think of heaven and we think of eternity like that. That is when we long for the pleasures of this earth to come to us before Jesus does. Because I don't know about you. I don't want to spend eternity playing an instrument on a cloud somewhere. 
I want to run. I want to jump. I want to build. I want to do things in this new perfect body. I want to see the way that I'm supposed to see and hear the way that I'm supposed to hear. And that is what is promised to me because of the resurrection of the body of Jesus Christ. That is what is for you. This is what the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is. It is an eternal, physical, bodily presence with an eternal, physical, bodily Jesus for eternity. Think about living for a billion billion years and then think about living for a billion more. I don't know. It's eternity. I can't fathom that. But that's what it is. This is the first point. Let's get to the second point. How do we know? And maybe this is a question you're asking this morning. How do we know? Ryan, the idea and the image of our bodies being made new and running like a Rolls Royce compared to a clunky beat up Pinto sounds awesome. No offense to Pinto drivers out there. That sounds awesome. How in the world can I even begin to entertain the possibility of this? How do, how do you know? And so we've got to answer that question. And here's the answer to that question. How do we know we don't? I don't know. You don't know. And anybody that tells you they know, they're lying to you. And here's what I mean by that. The type of knowing that we mean when we ask, how do we know, is defined often empirically. It is a sensory experience, if you will. It is one of the modern day creeds of our day. That if you can't see it, touch it, feel it right now, then it is not real. And so according to that creed, since no one has seen or heard or touched the postmortem body of Jesus, then no one knows for sure. But even Richard Dawkins, the leading voice in the atheist movement, agrees that none of us actually live empirically. We don't live, even if this is a philosophy of ours, we don't live this out actually in our day-to-day lives. All of our worldviews, he suggests, whether God or Godless, has an element of faith in it that we must rest upon. Instead, we are all uh, pledging ourselves, says Dawkins, not to 100% certainty, but to best plausibility. And that we give our lives over to that. He would make a really good Christian. Dawkins just believes that God is not possible or plausible. And so he submits his life to that. Christians today have bought the lie that empirical data, knowing what 100% certain, knowing with a 100% certainty in that, in that sense, if you will, is possible and thus how we should live as Christians, but it's not. And the Bible gives us no room to suggest that this is how you are to live. We live on faith in something, whether you believe in God or not. So to come back to the question, how do we know? Scripture is not silent here. It just doesn't view the world the way moderns and postmoderns do. And thank goodness for that which is why we have been calling the creed a roadmap of reality. So that it pulls us back from these ways of of sort of living and breathing the way the world does. And it's here that I find scripture to be not just so helpful and intellectually satisfying, but it feeds my soul. And the way that the scripture talks about how we know is what this phrase called first fruits. Have you ever read or come across that in scripture? And maybe wondered what in the world is that? The idea of first fruits, which shows up first in Exodus, uh, it was, was a phrase given uh, to God's people, Israel. And so months before harvest, Israel would go into the fields and they would gather the very first fruits of the trees and, and the harvest and the plants that year. And they would bring them back 
uh, to um, the priests and they would offer those first fruits as a sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, they didn't eat them. And this was an exercise of faith for them. Why? Well, in an agrarian lifestyle, this is how you lived. Right? This was survival. But there was also lifestyle, right? Maybe you want to get a new rug. We could sell this first harvest and pay for that rug. I don't know. Like this was their whole being. And so giving these first fruits up was costly for them. It was a costly obedience, both monetarily, as I just suggested, but two, you had no promise, no empirical data, if you will, that another harvest would come down the road. You had no promise that some neighboring army would not come in and wipe out your fields. And this is just where God wanted Israel to not trust in their sensory experiences. To not put their faith in that, but to put their faith in him, to trust him, to believe that if God could do this, which is the first fruits, he will do that. This is what it means to believe in first fruits, if you will. And this is how we know. So what does Paul do in 1 Corinthians 15? He equates the bodily resurrection of Jesus to this idea of first fruits. Listen to it again. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. See, for Paul like the first fruits of a harvest, if a dead man named Jesus has walked out of a tomb, so will you. So will you. This is why resurrection is everything for Paul. This is, this is why Christianity got started, y'all. Because a dead man walked out of a tomb. Not because it had good ethics and good ideas. Those would come later. But because something fundamentally changed with the way that we are to, to live and what we are to hope for. And so why Paul puts everything, he goes all in on this. Otherwise, we are to eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Resurrection is not just where everything starts for Christianity. It is also where everything ends. It ends with a body. So what does this mean for you this morning? How can you know? And the answer is you can't empirically. But is this how you're living? Might be an, a, a moment to sort of pull off to the side here and ask that question. That all that is real is all that I taste and see and hear and feel here and now in this world. Or could you consider another way of living? A way of trusting, of entering those seals, so to speak, for Israel and seeing and touching and hearing the first of the first fruits of, of that harvest, but bringing them back to the Lord and trusting that as, as these things happen, so would this. That as people saw and, and touched and felt and heard the postmortem resurrected body of Jesus, that you can trust them and you can say, because this happened, this can happen to you. If you want my answer to how we know, that is how we know. But any ideas of that type of knowledge and that type of living coming without faith are foolish, foolish. 
This is how we know. This is the first fruits. Well, what will this bodily resurrection and life everlasting be like? And the quick answer to that is we are not told. But how fun it is to sort of imagine. Right? And you hear children, for, what, what will this new body look like? What will it be like? And this is where Paul encourages us to use our imaginations instead. When we read that God creates and raises from the dead, we do not read how he does those things or how it will come about. And that is not for us. But it is for your imaginations to ponder. And listen to Paul again here at the, as someone who asked the question, what will it be like? But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Verse 36, you foolish person. Wouldn't you love to be told that by Paul? <laughs> what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. See, for Paul, what he does is he equates the old and resurrected bodies, uh, excuse me, he equates our old and resurrected bodies to that of a seed and what it produces in time. For Paul, what we sow, the seed, that is the best way to describe these earthly bodies in relation to the future resurrected bodies. Consider if you have seen a live oak tree, which many of you I know probably have, I have two gorgeous live oak trees in my yard, or maybe you've had the privilege of going and seeing a a redwood or one of the giant sequoias out there in California. I want you to think about unseeing those for just a second and think about somebody holding a seed in their hand and now asking you to, to imagine what could come of that seed and to begin to imagine what a live oak might actually look like or a great sequoia or a, red, or a redwood. And see, you can't. And that's the point. And so in one sense, Paul is saying, you can't imagine this, but try to imagine it. And part of our job is to do that, right? It is to step into the unknown and to use our senses, but to, to, to try to imagine the unimaginable. One pastor puts it this way. He says, don't think about what our bodies will look like, but think about it in terms of senses. You have five senses now. I hope that's all you have. But think about having 5,000. Have you thought of that? Or let's just consider having one of our senses today work perfectly. I mean, what if you could hear without the aid of hearing devices? What if you could see without the help of glasses? We all remember what TV was like, perhaps over 10 years ago now, before HD came to rescue all of us. Right? I mean, like, you remember that? It was terrible. You know, and after experiencing TV in high def for almost a decade now, I can't go back. I won't. And I'll be honest with you. If you invite me over to your house to watch a game and you don't have HDTV, I'm not coming over. <laughs> I won't settle for that. You shouldn't settle for that. You were made for something better. Let's go get you another TV. But if we can make adjustments to viewing potentials, you know, on TV that are so infinitely better than the old ones 10 years ago, what is it going to be like when you are given a perfect body and your senses are the way that they're supposed to be and that they never go out? I don't know what my resurrected body would look like, but I'm invited to imagine the unimaginable and I want to invite you to do the same. But make no mistake, our bodies must die first. This is the hard part. 
They must die first, according to Paul. And it's the same thing as a seed. Did you know that for redwoods and sequoias, that in order for their seeds to actually grow other trees, that those seeds have to die first. They have to be caught on fire because it's only the heat of fire that cracks the seed and opens the seed cones so that they might go out into the ground. And not just any ground, a ground that must have, has to be burned. That's the only way they germinate, either through controlled fires or wild, wildfires. See, death and resurrection, friends, is all around us. You will die. This body will give out, but it will give way to a new body that our imaginations can't fathom. And that's the point for Paul. But try, try, try to imagine the unimaginable. All right, lastly, who is all this for? So much here. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is the best part, though. Who is this for? Who is the resurrected body in the everlasting life for? You might think that it's for church folk. You might think that it's for good people. You might think that it's definitely, you know, for people who are uh, of means, movers and shakers in the community, people to get stuff done. You might think that it's for anyone but me. But John tells us in Revelation 21, 6, who this wonderful eternity is for. Did you catch it? Let me read it for us one last time. Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Who is this for? It's for the thirsty. It's for the thirsty. It is what all of the creed speaks of as well. It is for those who would say, Jesus, I hunger and thirst for you. And to those who would say that, come and drink without cost. Why is this good news? It's good news for those who tend to be the most thirsty in scripture, who tend to be the ones that seem furthest from the well. And there are aspects of your life where you feel like I can't even talk about this because if anybody knew about this, they would not, they would, they would, they would no longer care to know who I am. But the bigger problem about that is that you think that God thinks this way about you too. But when we look at scripture, when we look at who is really thirsty in scripture, right? And the way that Jesus calls us to be thirsty, it's those who seem furthest from the well. It is David right after Bathsheba and after killing Uriah. It is the prodigal son who has gone and squandered all of his means. It is the sinner who knows he is a sinner who beats his chest and says, Father, have mercy on me. The thirsty are those who are who have tried, excuse me, to do their life their way. Those who have sought to fill that hunger and thirst in them with things that perish or that rust and moth destroys. It is those who have mistaken the good things of this world as the final things. It is those who have substituted any type of righteousness for the righteousness of Jesus. They are ready to come to that well of living water to Jesus and to drink. And so, friends, are you thirsty? Are you tired of finding out that the things of this world, as good as they are, are not the real thing? 
Are you tired of putting all of your eggs, all of your hopes and baskets in this earthly basket, if you will, to find them either to never deliver or to be taken away by death itself? Because if so, then you are in fact thirsty and you might even, you might not even know it. It is possible that many of us have been duped to think that this life is all there is. And so we have to soak it up. And it's possible that many of us buy into that and think that this time it'll be different. That if I get that promotion, then my life will change. If I get this relationship, then my life will change. But it won't and you won't. And do you want to know why? Those things, though they are good things, according to the Bible, are not heaven. They are not where you are going. They are signs of the real thing that point to heaven, which is Jesus himself. If your understanding of where you are going is anything less than being with the, being with the bodily resurrected Jesus, that heaven is some gold-paved road and mansion, then you are in for severe disappointment. Heaven for you has to be Jesus. It has to be who you are going to be with. It has to be where you are going. It has to be him that you are caught up with. That is why he says, for those who are hungry and thirsty for me, come to me. Look, you don't even have to be interested in Christianity to be thirsty the way that the Bible talks about being thirsty. You just have to be, you know, somebody of this world. We're tired. Tired of the seduction of this world that just takes and takes and takes and never gives anything back. But the question is always, when you get to that point, what water are you reaching for this time? And that's a good question for myself. Those things, though they are good, are not the real thing. Would you consider Jesus who says, come to me and I will give you living water. Come and drink without payment. This is who the bodily resurrection and the life everlasting is for. It is for the thirsty. Well, this is what the resurrection of the body and life everlasting is. This is how we know. This is what it is like. And this is who it is for. So what about today? And one thought to leave you. I wish we had small groups tonight to talk about this, but we don't. One thought to leave you is that knowing where, we are, we are, knowing where we are going, knowing where we are going, allows us to hold loosely the good things of this world because we know this isn't it. And what that means for you this morning is that you can actually consider suffering, the type of suffering that Jesus would call you to when he says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and come after me. A type of dying. For Jesus to call us to himself for Jesus to say, come after me is an invitation to die because it is an invitation to love as he has loved you make no mistake about this. It is here where the church has to recognize that to claim this incredible future of resurrection and life everlasting is to see what it costs. Your life everlasting is yours, friends, because you were loved when you didn't deserve it. And now that is how you're going to die to yourself and love others, those who don't deserve it. Your life everlasting was paid for you before you had a righteous bone in your body. And now you're going to give others patience and kindness and grace. 
as they come along and perhaps recognize the truth that you have been shown. That is how you're going to die to yourself. Your life everlasting is secure today, despite the ways that you over and over stumble and fall because someone gave up their dreams and gave up their hopes and their desires and chose instead that having you was way better than experiencing all the things of this world. And so he took the cup and he did not pass it. And he did this for you. And so now Jesus gets to call us to die too. The martyrs understood this love and the cost that it took for them to have it such that they would rejoice to remain in the fire because their future promise of a resurrected body and life everlasting with Jesus was certain. It was a matter of time. They weren't too heavenly minded to be any earthly good, if you will. Their heavenly mind freed them to earthly good. And that is the point. But more than likely, you will not be called to martyrdom. More than likely, that is not for you on Monday morning. But what is for you on Monday morning is to consider what it looks like for you to die to yourself each day. To die because you know where you are going. To die to your greed. To die to your sexual appetite when the world around you seems to feast. To die to your dreams, to your longings, to your desires. And how will you do that? How will you consider suffering? If you, if you are not living, in, if your life is not living out of the reality of where you are going, you will never consider suffering for Jesus in this way. That is what the creed has for us. But you will if you know that this world isn't all that there is to offer. And this becomes the model for us then. The model of death and resurrection in this life as we wait for our what? Final death and resurrection. That'll happen to you 10,000 times before your final death and resurrection. When I was a teenager, when I first got broken up with, right? We all have that story. That was death to me. But what was resurrection? It wasn't another girl. It wasn't a wife and kids. That was a more of an invitation to die. What resurrection looked like was a chance to bring my pain and sadness to Jesus, to know him more as the one who knows pain and knows sadness and to draw upon him for my hope and rest and security and acceptance, not in somebody else. See, it was actually through my suffering that I was drawing closer to Jesus. That's a resurrection because that's what heaven looks like. It is being with Jesus. And the more that we offer ourselves in costly obedience and suffering here for the sake of following him, we can consider doing that. We can consider loving others sacrificially, not only because this world isn't, you know, this world isn't all that there is, but because that allows me to know Jesus more, which is what heaven is all about. So what does dying look like for you today? What does it look like for the church? And maybe for some of us, it's just, It just means I don't have to win this argument or the next one. Maybe for you, it's I don't have to be right this time. I don't have to get my way. I don't have to have my entire life planned out. I don't have to get into that school. I don't have to be invited to that party to be loved and accepted and appreciated and have value. And certainly for our good friend Aiden Bradley at 15... 
It means it's okay if Jesus comes back before his wedding night. Because the real wedding, the real wedding night that is longing in his heart is the one that will happen when Christ comes and takes his bride, the church, to be with her forever. That is where you are going. And it has everything to do with what you choose to do today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there is so much to say about not just this series, but about the life everlasting that you promise to us. I pray, Lord, that we would, in the ways that you would lead us and direct us, give us the courage to consider the suffering that you call us to, whether it's life circumstances or whether it's through obedience in you, that we would be able to consider that because we know that this world isn't all there is. We know that we are going someplace, and that place is, uh, holds the longings of all of our hearts, the things that all this earth points to. Would we trust that? Would we trust that because you did this, you will do that? Go with us now, we ask. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.